Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Well, welcome everybody. My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here at Knox Presbyterian Church. Welcome. This is week nine of our Long Story Short class on uh, warning. And uh, I'm excited to jump in and talk about the Old Testament. But before we do that, let's pray together. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time uh, to gather together to study Holy Scripture and understand more of its message. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit and grant that we may take the message of Holy Scripture to heart, especially the message of Jeremiah. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So this week, we are looking at the prophets, in particular, the prophet Jeremiah. So before we do that, I want to um, lift up a few pointers that I think will help you in engaging this part of the scripture. So the first thing, this is a pretty elementary point, but it's very important for considering the prophets. So we often approach the prophets as though they were repositories of future things yet to happen. Um, and, and that's actually somewhat misleading when it comes to the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. So the prophets are much more invested in commentary on the present than they are in prediction of the future. So when we, in other words, if you sit down and think, right, prophet Jeremiah, where's Jesus in here? You know, where's the prophecy that's going to point me directly to Christ? You, you might have a hard time. The, the way to begin with Jeremiah is to begin by looking at what's happening in the events of Jeremiah's time and what God is saying through him to Israel. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this is a place by the time you get to the prophets, you're starting to see a considerable amount of overlap between the prophets' stories and the stories of the kings. So in, in terms of the structure of the Old Testament, you're starting to see a considerable amount of overlap between the historical books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the Chronicles, overlap between those and the prophetic books. And you can tell that this is going on if you read carefully because so many of the prophets and the kings overlap with one another or engage with one another in Holy Scripture. So Elijah and the, uh, the wicked king Ahab, Isaiah and the good king Hezekiah, Jeremiah and Zedekiah, these are all characters who are engaging with one another on the pages of Scripture. Now, this gets tricky because the books with these stories in them are often interspersed, I would affectionately say, willy-nilly throughout the Old Testament. So, for instance, the prophet Isaiah turns up in 2 Kings. So he does all kinds of interesting stuff in 2 Kings, in addition to, of course, turning up in the book named after him. And 2 Kings and the book of Isaiah are separated by several books in the Old Testament. You can read about the same event, the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, in several different Old Testament texts. It's in 2 Kings, it's in 2 Chronicles, and it's in the book of Jeremiah. So that's something to be aware of. And then you you get this other example. The book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are describing events that take place after Israel has gone into exile and they have been released So the kind of stuff we'll be talking about next week. But Ezra and Nehemiah are squashed into the middle of the Hebrew Bible between the historical books and the prophets. So I just wanted to throw that out because it's often very confusing if you read the Old Testament through from cover to cover, you kind of expect a sequential story. It's gonna start at point A and end at point B. And it does not work that way. Instead, it's this wonderful kind of, kind of a kaleidoscope, right? Where you're looking through and it's, a very, it's one object refracted in a bunch of different ways. It's brilliant, it's beautiful, it's powerful. It can be a little bit difficult to sort out. So, all that to say is if you get confused, you're in good company. I still get confused every once in a while. 
Um, don't be afraid to ask questions, and we'll work as a team to get as good a hold on this as we can. I always like to ask the David Byrne question. How did I get here? I wasn't sure if everyone was on the same wavelength as me the last time we were here and talked about this, so I found this picture of him. I believe this is from the famous Talking Heads video uh, for Once in a Lifetime. Um, as you can see, he's wearing a very large suit, and it's an image that's stuck in my prepubescent brain at like age five of like, that man's wearing a very big suit. What's going on there? Hmm, okay. So um, I always like to ask the David Byrne question at the start of, this, start of this class. So how do we get from kings to prophets? How do we get from where we were last week to where we were this week? Well, you already have part of the answer because kings and prophets kind of go like this in the Bible. Last week, we talked about David and Jeroboam. Uh, there are two kings described in the Old Testament who become paradigms or examples for what follows. David becomes the paradigm of the good king and Jeroboam becomes the paradigm of the bad king. The Bible is quite explicit about this. You know, it'll say, so-and-so was a good king, he did everything that his ancestor David did, or by contrast, it will say, so-and-so was a very bad king, he followed in the way of Jeroboam, or committed the sin of Jeroboam. Under David, scripture tells us that all 12 tribes of Israel were united into a single kingdom, Jeroboam's sins play a large role in dividing the kingdom into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem is in that southern kingdom. So you can see here, and I don't know how much detail you can see up on the screen, but that territory in yellow, that's the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jerusalem is in there. It's that star up at the top, if you can make out the star, in the yellow territory. And the bigger blue territory is the northern kingdom of Israel. So you can see the northern territory is a little bit bigger. Um, but that's, you know, that's an example of how the territory might have been divided. And a visual image of what we're talking about when we talk about there being two kingdoms. So let's talk a little bit about the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel's first ruler is Jeroboam. So the first ruler of the northern kingdom is Jeroboam, who is the prototype of the bad king. So this does not bode well for the people of the northern kingdom. And uh, the rulers that follow him are uniformly bad in the judgment of the Bible. Not one escapes uh, falling short. What you see in the Bible is that God sends prophets to attempt to call those bad kings to account. For example, figures like Amos and Hosea. So remember, we're jumping around in the Old Testament. So Amos and Hosea are, are so-called minor prophets, writing shorter prophetic books. They come later in the Old Testament. Um, the most famous uh, prophet of the Northern Kingdom may be Elijah. Um, how many of you have heard of Elijah? Many of you, most of you. So he's a well-known figure in Scripture. Many of our beloved stories are about him. Um, so how many of you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? A few of us. So let, we'll take a quick look at it together. So open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings 18 and 19. So I won't read the whole thing, but essentially, um, I hope you'll be able to follow along by reading headings and skimming this. So essentially, you know, this is a period where there's a king on the throne in the north. His name is Ahab. He's notoriously bad. Um, when um, Herman Melville wrote his book, Moby Dick, what's the name of the crazy captain in Moby Dick? Captain Ahab, right? That's a reference that usually flies right over our head, but to the theologically educated reader, you would be like, okay, this captain's not gonna work out too well. So um, Ahab is a terrible king. Elijah has the rather thankless job of trying to call him to account and get him to straighten up and fly right or accept that there will be consequences. And uh, Scripture tells us that Ahab is deeply in bed with foreign deities. So what happens beginning with chapter 18, verse 20, is that there's kind of a contest between the gods. And uh, there's this story that, you know, Elijah creates an altar and the priests of Baal create an altar and who can get fire to come down first? 
and eventually Elijah is victorious and the priests of Baal are defeated. Um, it's a wonderful story. It's familiar to many of us and it symbolizes the kind of uh, what the Bible considers the lousy spiritual conditions in the Northern Kingdom that Elijah's job was one of active opposition and resistance over against Ahab um, and the throne up north and also uh, helps impart the very difficult job that prophets had where their job was often to speak truth to those invested with political power. And so Elijah spends a lot of this story, you know, telling the truth to Ahab and then running for his life so that he doesn't get killed, which is, we'll see more of that soon. The northern kingdom falls first. So it falls to Assyria in 722 BC. I'm going to hand out, I have a handout. I'm going to hand out a handout. Um, this is a list of the kings of Israel and Judah. Um, I got this from my introduction to Old Testament te textbook. Um, and it's just a helpful way of getting the information in front of you, especially if you're a novice in studying the Old Testament, this can be a really helpful way to, to see how many kings they were, there were, where they were, um, when they were, and you know, tuck this in your Bible if you want and, and take it with you. So you can see on the right, on the left-hand side here, it says Judah, that's the Southern Kingdom. Sorry, the left-hand side is Judah, the right-hand side is Israel. So Israel falls first. So you can see down at the bottom of the right-hand column, it says fall of Samaria, 722. So that's when the Northern Kingdom is gobbled up. So Assyria is another ancient Near Eastern power. They come in, whoosh, you know, scoop them up, make them their own. And that's the end of the Northern Kingdom in 722. If you look down at the bottom of the left-hand column, where it says destruction of Jerusalem, that's when the Southern Kingdom falls, about 586 BC. So the Southern Kingdom manages to make it, what, another 150 years after the Northern Kingdom falls. So they're able to make it a little bit longer, um, they're a bit more successful. So let's talk about the southern kingdom for a second. The southern kingdom of Judah, by contrast, is a much more mixed bag. So the northern kingdom starts out with King Jeroboam, the paradigm of a bad king, and pretty much goes downhill from there. By contrast, the southern kingdom uh, has a bunch of kings. Some of them are very bad, while others are good. Here, too, God sends prophets to correct, rebuke, guide the kings and the people. And you can see some of the, the prophets to the south there. Isaiah is, is among them, Zephaniah and others. Often what we see in Scripture is that because the kings of the south are better, um, more faithful to God's design, the relationship between them and the prophet is friendlier, less adversarial, not one of enemies like you would find up north, right? If Ahab saw Elijah, he would kill him. Whereas Isaiah and King Hezekiah have a close relationship. So just for a point of comparison, pull out your Bibles again and look at 2 Kings 18 and 19. This is a great passage. So in my Bible, 2 Kings 18 begins by saying Hezekiah's reign over Judah. And in verse 3, mine says, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his ancestor David had done. So there we see it, the, the sort of definitive sign in the Bible that a king is good. Usually it'll just say, he did what was right in the Lord, just as his ancestor David has done. Maybe every once in a while it'll say, he did what was right, but not everything. He screwed up this one thing. But Hezekiah passes pretty well. Um, so he's, he's doing very well. So then flip to uh, chapter 18, verse 13. Is there a heading in your Bible 
over chapter 18, verse 13. What, what is it? Yeah, uh, Sennacherib's invade, invasion, or Sennacherib invades Judah, right? That's what it says in mine, probably says something similar in many of yours. Um, so essentially, this is a, uh, an incursion by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians come calling with their big army, and they're threatening Judah, and in particular, Jerusalem. And I encourage you, in your spare time, to read verses 13 through 37, the rest of this chapter, because it's a fascinating story. Essentially, the representatives of the Assyrians come up and essentially say, uh, we know you cannot withstand us. We know you can't repel us. At one point, they say, go on and send out your horses. We doubt you have 50 horses. And if you have 50 horses, you don't have 50 men to ride those horses, <laughs> right? So they're, they're talking trash in this very ancient, hilarious, biblical way. At the start of chapter 19, my heading says, Hezekiah consults Isaiah. So the point is, what's happening here is uh, the southern kingdom has troubles. They're being threatened by a foreign power. What does the good king do? He goes to the prophet, to the man of God, the one who will speak the word of the Lord to him. And he says, what should we do? And to make a, a long story short, the Assyrian invaders are repelled. The invasion is not successful. Jerusalem does not fall. The kingdom stands. So you can see here the relationship between king and prophet is very different and more collaborative. That's my point. Unfortunately, in the long run, the outcome is the same. So um, if you look at this list of kings of Judah, Let's see. So Hezekiah is a good king. I think the last good king in the judgment in the south in the judgment of scripture is Josiah. You can see there he's listed from around 640 to 609. The rest of them are kind of bad or mediocre. And then at the bottom you get the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So at last Jerusalem is captured by the Babylonians and destroyed. Let me say a word about Jeremiah, and then we'll pause for some questions. So today we're focusing on just one figure among the prophets, and that's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a so-called major prophet. His book is quite long. Um, he's certainly worthy of our attention. We could just as easily be studying Isaiah or Ezekiel or one of the minor prophets. I pretty much picked Jeremiah because I like him, and I think he's cool. We could just as easily be doing another one. Teaching this course is a little bit like teaching a course called Introduction to National Parks. And you have to imagine that like week four in Introduction to the National Parks is Yellowstone National Park. And the first class on Tuesday is, okay, here's Old Faithful. And then you spend 60 minutes talking about it and then you have to move on. And you talk on Thursday, you're talking about, well, here are these incredible uh, water features throughout the park. And then you're done. And everyone is saying, wow, Yellowstone National Park is pretty cool. But you have to be saying, right, on to Arches National Park, right? That's a little bit how I feel teaching this course and especially how I feel teaching Jeremiah. Um, we're only gonna be able to dip our toes into the water in the smallest way and then we'll have to move on but hopefully it's an inspiration for you to continue studying um, and a resource for digging a little bit deeper. Jeremiah is active in ministry from about 627 BC to 587 BC. And he lives in Judah. He lives in the Southern Kingdom. So in other words, um, he ministers right in the era before Jerusalem and Judah are gobbled up for good. And his message is fitting and appropriate for that season in Israel's life. Essentially, his message is a last-ditch message of imminent disaster and the necessity of repentance. Generally speaking, he is roundly ignored and rejected, but is preserved by God through many trials and is proved right, vindicated by historical events. So you've heard of the boy who cried wolf. 
This is someone who predicts disaster, which does not come to pass. Um, Jeremiah is not the boy who cried wolf. You know, he predicts disaster, and unfortunately, it comes to pass. So that's a little bit about Jeremiah's context. Um, what's next is to start looking at some individual passages and talking about those. But before we do that, let's uh, take a minute and see if there are any questions. In uh, talking about Jeremiah and his uh, trying to tell everybody that you know the uh, the end was near and and the danger was imminent, um, he. Uh, he was active in his ministry from 625 to 587, and it says in our list of kings that Josiah, a good king, yeah. was, was in power through 609. Mm-hmm. Um, good. Did, did Jeremiah's message about this imminent danger really begin to, to come alive after um, Josiah was, was out of power? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So... And we'll see this because we're going to look at Jeremiah 1 in just a moment. So Jeremiah dates the start of, the start of his ministry to, the, to King Josiah's reign. But he, he, doesn't have a lot, he doesn't have a lot of critical things to say about Josiah. But Josiah is remembered as one of the good kings, and the inference we make is that he approved of Josiah's reign. Yeah. I find it kind of interesting that, um, you know, the king had... Uh, Two, you know, kind of two different sides of the equation. One guy saying, you're in deep trouble here, and then people in the court saying, no, no, everything's fine. Yeah. And they consider both of them to be prophets. Yes, that's right. You know, if you go back in, in earlier in our studies, God talked to Abraham. He talked to Moses. It seemed like he'd have had better success talking directly to the king. <laughs> Instead of having come, you know, two different people, two groups of people trying to tell him, here's what you ought to do. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. So the, the first thing there is something I want to underscore for all of us, right? So how do you figure out who is a genuine prophet? So there were, there were a great many claimants to the title of prophet, especially in this period of the kings. And there were actually so-called court prophets who were people that were presumably on the royal payroll who in theory, were prophets paid to pass along the word of the Lord. In practice, were people who were paid to say nice things to the king and give a divinely authorized message, with air quotes, that the king wanted to hear. So that, that whole question of how do, you, how do you figure out who the authentic prophet is, is a very important one for Jeremiah as well as for all the other prophets. Do you want to say anything between Assyria and Babylon? Mm, no, I reached the limit of my knowledge on that point. Six tw- okay, thank you. Apparently 612 is of some importance. I'll study up on that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's certainly true, right? So Assyria is the first threat, and they are eventually supplanted by Babylon, which is the second threat. So the way I was explained was Assyria, Babylon, Cyrus. So first it's Assyria, they're the big dog. They're eventually replaced by Babylon. Babylon is the nation that does conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. There, uh, the, many of the Hebrews are dragged off to exile in Babylon and eventually Cyrus of Persia um, grants those exiles their freedom to return home. So next week we're gonna hear a lot more about Cyrus and how, um, who he is and his role and what God's up to. Um, I wanted to share this. This is a famous painting of Jeremiah. This is, I believe, from the Sistine Chapel um, by Michelangelo. And you can see here he's, he's shedding a tear. Um, so Jeremiah's nickname is the Weeping Prophet. Um, and I just found this image very poignant and wanted to share it with you. Um, very lifelike. If you're listening online, look it up. It's amazing. Um, okay, so I'm going to read us Jeremiah 1, 1 through 19. That's the entirety of Jeremiah 1, so turn to it now in your Bibles. Jeremiah 1, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. 
to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot tilted away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north disaster shall break out on all the inhabitants of the land. For now I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. And they shall come, and all of them shall set their thrones at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its surrounding walls, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, for all their wickedness in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. But you, gird up your loins, stand up and tell them everything that I command you, do not break down before them, or I will break you before them. And I, for my part, have made you today a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its princes, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Okay, take a moment, turn to a neighbor, talk about the passage we just read, come up with a comment or a question, and we'll come back in a few. All right, why don't we come back together? Some people look like they're having a very good time and I want to put a stop to that as soon as possible. Um, so what are your comments, thoughts, or questions? I think it's always interesting that when, the, when God is getting ready to do something really terrifying to you, he says, don't be afraid. Right? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, he gives, so look at the, the end of this chapter. Um, 17 through 19, gird up your loins. That's a phrase that's pretty much, you know, only used in the Bible. It's also used in the book of Job when Job, when God replies to Job out of the whirlwind, what he says is gird up your loins, right? Put on your big boy pants, stand up and listen to me because I'm going to talk to you now. So the same idea here, except he's saying, put on your big boy points, your big boy pants. You're going to go talk to all those big, powerful people. And what you're going to say is make them very angry Get ready to do that. Um, and I, for my part, have made you today a fortified city. You, are, you will be strong and impregnable against the anger you will provoke. I am with you. Um, and it's this wonderful, is this, is this a depressing passage or an uplifting passage? I'm going to just read my thing here. It says, now get ready. Stand up and tell them everything I've commanded you. Mm -hmm. Do not be intimidated by them or I will cause them 
you to cower before them. Today, I am the one who's made a fortified city, a pillar of bronze, etc., mm-hmm. against the kings of Judah, its officials, and priests and population. They will fight against you, but never prevail. So he's saying the kings of Judah will not prevail against oh, yeah. the attackers. Uh, well, and they. So my says they will fight against you, against you, Jeremiah, the kings of Judah, the princes, its priests, and the people of the land. So certainly, part of what Jeremiah's message is. Jeremiah's message is, don't resist Babylon. God has given Jerusalem and Judah into the hand of Babylon. And if you sign up to fight Babylon, you're in trouble. I mean, part of what I find interesting is the mixture of blunt, you know, if you're looking for an upper in this passage, you won't find it, right? So God is being very forthright with Jeremiah in this passage and saying, You've signed up for something extremely difficult. You haven't signed up for it. I've enlisted you, but I will be with you. And it's the element of consolation. It's the element of I will be with you that is very faithful to the most inspiring and encouraging parts of both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Well, I I think it's interesting that uh, the message that the temple prophets are giving to the king and the people is that God will be with you and you will prevail. Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, the the same message is coming to Jeremiah that's coming to the kings. Yeah. But the kings are not supposed to believe that same message, but Jeremiah is. Right. We're going to get into true and false prophets again on this. Sure. Right. Well, Right, and part of it is that, you know, the, the king has his temple prophets and his court prophets who are saying, you'll prevail. And Jeremiah, from the perspective of, of the culture of Judah, Jeremiah was a pretty marginal figure in terms of his social status. He was not wealthy and he didn't have a ton of friends, partly because his message was regarded as a downer. So in, as so often in the Bible, we see God eschewing the center of power to be with the people on the margin. So I, I, maybe that's another way of reading that, right? Well, the reason I brought up the, the fall of, uh, of the Assyrians is, is, is the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. Yeah. And that was during the time of Jeremiah. Mm. So it's not far off sure. above, above the border sure. when uh, uh-huh. the northerners fell. Right. And so he's speaking to the south with the, the Babylonians who beat the Assyrians. So right. I, I think part of what he's saying, you better be alert to this. Yes. The, the north fell and you know, mm-hmm. are you going to submit or be destroyed? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Right. If your neighbor's house was burglarized you would not leave your doors unlocked. You would go out and buy an alarm system. And part of what is so, um, part of what's so interesting and powerful about the Jeremiah story, right, is the sort of intransigence of the Hebrews in the Southern Kingdom to think it can't happen here. Not, you know, yes, the North fell to Assyria, but that's not gonna happen here. And of course they were wrong. Um, other questions or comments? Okay. Um, so for how many of you was it the first time really reading or studying this passage? Several of us. Okay, so that explains it. I, I, that explains some of it, right? Um, let me make a few comments that are, that are helpful. Um, if you want one way of tracing the idea, um, one way of tracing a theme throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end is looking at the idea of calling or vocation. In our society, it's fashionable to debate whether or not a God exists. Do you believe in God? Don't you believe in God? In the eyes of Scripture, that's a boring and irrelevant question. Scripture's interested in, is there a God that calls people to serve Him in the manner we see in the Old Testament in the Jeremiah narrative? And Jeremiah is someone who has, he stakes his whole life on God has called me. And he has called me to repeat this one message. We're in trouble. We got to do a U-turn. Don't try and throw off the Babylonian yoke. 
we're in trouble. And he repeats it with sort of, you would call it fanatical unless, but it's not, but it's virtuous, right? He repeats it with stubborn faithfulness for decades. Um, and so I think in, in this opening chapter, one of the things we see is just this very powerful illustration of the calling of God. Uh, it's right up there with the, you know, the story of Moses in Exodus. And there, you know, Jeremiah is certainly aware, the book of Jeremiah is certainly aware of the messiness of contested claims to speak for God. You know, the, uh, the prophet Jeremiah knew that perfectly well, and the book of Jeremiah is happy to show that to us as well. So this past weekend, I preached on Jeremiah wearing the yoke. So that's Jeremiah 27. In Jeremiah 28, there is a court prophet who sees Jeremiah doing this and grabs the yoke off of his head and smashes it to the ground. And the court prophet says, nope, that's, God's going to do this. God's going to take the Babylonian yoke and smash it. And so he's stealing Jeremiah's sermon illustration and using it to make his own point. The call of God is always contested, but it's nevertheless real. It's nevertheless real. Our church exists because we believe in the call of God. So when Deb and Clint went away from this church, what happened? You guys had an interim pastor. Then there was a small pandemic, and that took a long time to sort out. But then you guys had a, a, a pastor nominating committee. You picked a bunch of your people and you prayed for them and said, right, go find us a pastor. And they were empowered to listen for God's call. And they came to Becca and myself and they said, okay, Dave and Becca, we think God is calling you. Do you think God is also calling you? I mean, that's how this church works. It's on the perception of the call of God. That's the only thing keeping the engine going. If one day everybody in the Presbyterian church said, you know, I don't think God's calling anyone to do anything anymore. The whole engine would grind to a halt. So that's the first thing. Jeremiah is a story about the powerful call of God. Second thing is, is related to this, that prophet, pro, being a prophet is a difficult, difficult job, and it is accepted in Jeremiah's case with great reluctance and only with repeated assurance of divine aid. So no one in the Old Testament is in a hurry to be a prophet because it's a difficult job. And it means, you know, what's the opposite of win friends and influence people? Lose friends and tick off powerful people, right? I mean, that's pretty much what it means for Jeremiah. That's what it means for Elijah. So, um, when you, if you ask Jeremiah, how do I know that you're a real prophet? Part of what he would have said is, well, I can't prove it to you, but look at what I've endured for the sake of my message, which is a, a, an interesting and not insignificant point. Lastly, I think here you see the mystery of the mystery of divine providence and human response. So look again at verses four and five. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, essentially, you know, what this is saying is the book of Jeremiah starts by God saying to Jeremiah, before you were even born, when you were still just a twinkle in your father's eye, I knew that you would be my man to proclaim this message. So we see this massive claim about, you know, predestination, divine providence, divine foreknowledge, call it what you want. It's all tangled up, but it's there in the text. And... We also see this mystery that Jeremiah freely, well, freely, if reluctantly, accepts the divine call on his life and says, okay, God, you have in fact called me to do this, and I will push all of my chips forward onto the poker table of life to answer this call. 
Jeremiah is not interested in resolving that mystery for us in a neat and tidy way, but I think we do see it there, that it's not, it's not simply God saying, here's how it's going to be, you're a puppet on the string, you do what I say, nor is it simply Jeremiah saying, oh, I have an interesting idea about what I should do with my life. It's the interaction of divine providence and human faithfulness and human response that's at play here. I think we all have a calling. Figuring out what it is is very difficult because God's not telling me directly. (laughs) (laughs) I think he puts opportunities in front of me, some of which I ignore and some of which I may respond to. Sure. But you've been called called to be here, you and Becca. And, uh, you know... Uh, that's what our church believes a pastor is called, but I think the rest of us are called also. I, I certainly agree, yeah. And I, I think that's important, right? That certainly, you know, Jeremiah is called to be a, a, to call him, to call Jeremiah a religious professional is a little bit wrong and silly, but he has that religious vocation. And if you, you know, if you work for an insurance company, you don't have a religious vocation of the same thing, but you have a calling. I totally believe that's true. And we can be more in tune with that calling or less in tune with that calling. I, I agree. That's the case. Well, the thing I struggle with with all this that you just said is that it's easy for us to say these things here in this comfortable environment. <laughs> yeah. But you go to a refugee camp and you can't say to somebody, God called you to be here. This hmm. is part of God's plan for your life. Mm-hmm. So I struggle with this because yeah. I just feel like we're in this pr- this bubble yeah. where all this makes sense. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the world, it doesn't to sure. me. Sure. Uh, thank you, John. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Right? I mean, so C.S. Lewis famously said, you know, there's two versions of Christianity, and one is false and one is true. The false one is Christianity in water which says that God's in heaven and everything is fine. And the true version is Christianity, which says that Jesus died for us and all will be right in the end. And I think, I believe two things. You know, I I do believe in God's sovereign, wise ordering of the world that we live in. And I also believe that bad stuff happens to people in a way that doesn't make sense to me at this point in my life. And I think it's important, I think it's important for me as a Christian to maintain both of those things, which means acknowledging a mystery that isn't gonna be sorted out. So yeah, I would never go to a refugee camp and say, and quote Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Isn't it great that you've been displaced from your home and have lost everything and now you're here? Now, someone in a refugee camp might say that to me, you'd be surprised, but I wouldn't say it to them. Often, in my experience, it is, providence is a retrospective doctrine. And I think that's how, like, John Calvin describes it, right, is it's often by looking back on our lives that we're able to say, I didn't know it at the time, but this was God working this out. Sometimes we're not able to trace that in our lives, and and that's okay as well. Um, I think the book of Jeremiah, for instance, is clearly he's coming to us and speaking, I think, out of his own experience and saying, I was gripped by a sense of calling. God, you know, this wasn't a message I made up. And I think, you know, to hear, to hear the text, to understand Jeremiah is to understand at least that that's what he's saying. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, um, let's keep going. Let's look at another part of Jeremiah. Uh, we've got a little more time, so let's look at Jeremiah 7. So this is uh, called Jeremiah's temple sermon. So in this passage, Jeremiah actually goes to the temple in Jerusalem, and he preaches a message. And I'll, I'll read it for you now. Oh, this is so good. I remember when my Old Testament professor read this to me Uh, back at Princeton, it just blew my mind. So this is Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah. 
you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are safe only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I first made my name dwell, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, says the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, just as I cast out all your kinsfolk, all the offspring of Ephraim. All right, so turn to a neighbor and talk to one another about that for a second. Comment or a question. Okay, your thoughts and questions. This question uh, is one of chronology, so probably not appropriate to ask it. But, but, go for it. But anyway, um, with respect to Jeremiah's um, years as, as, as a prophet, he began the 13th year of Josiah's reign, mm -hmm. and then lasted for about 40 years. Yeah. And in, in looking at um, chapter 7, the sermon, I was kind of wondering when during that, at what time during this 40-year reign yeah. did he actually deliver a sermon like this? Because a lot of the, a lot of the information and in, in stories that, that follow this sermon in the, in the uh, book yeah. are related to things that either he was predicting were going to happen or maybe have happened already. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if there's any idea as to when yeah. this may have taken place. Yeah, I, I can't tell you off the top of my head. Um, and I would imagine the issue is vigorously debated among specialists. Um, it's hard to know. Yeah, it's hard to know with any exactitude. From 640 to 610, Assyria was the, the dominant power. And, and they took over in 612, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians. My, my sense is that this surely is during the time of the Babylonians. So it'd be halfway through his, half through his, his ministry, and probably not the first thing he, he said. But, but as they got to know Babylon and the power of Babylon, which was enough to throw over Assyria, um, this was the warning that you, if you don't deal with this and somehow accommodate, they use the word submit, and maybe that's compromise or whatever word we want to use, but, but uh, if you don't do that, we're going to be wiped out. And so find a, he doesn't put it that way, but find a way to have a peace treaty is what I would say. Thanks, David. Okay, other comments or questions? This wasn't my initial question, but... So a peace treaty based on what? Religious beliefs? Compromise 
a peace treaty based on so, find a way to compromise religious beliefs between the two? No, not necessarily. I mean, I, I think the, the primary thing would be independence. So what you see is either, so they would be allowed perhaps a measure of independence. They might have their own king provided that, and be allowed to continue worship in their own temple as they pleased, provided they paid tribute to Babylon. So they pay a heavy tax every year and they do what Babylon says. So it's not too different from certain relationships politically that exist today, right? Um, so basically they kind of become a little colony of Babylon. Now the stricter, more difficult version of that that it in fact happened, right, is Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, so worship can't happen there. They kill the king or, or, or take the king away and drag them off to, drag much of the ruling class off to Babylon. So then it becomes much more harsh and draconian. But there was an option for a much more benevolent kind of peace treaty that involved not, not so much giving up religious freedom, but giving up um, political autonomy. And that was what the king of Judah wanted. He wanted political autonomy more than he could get under the current arrangement. And so he revolted and that's what caused the problem. So my question was in this particular text, are the sins of the father cast upon the son and the mm. grandson, etc., cetera, um, per the very end of this section. And then getting back to the first segment that we discussed, Babylonians defeated Isra the Israelites because they weren't essentially doing what they were supposed to be doing, correct? Yeah. So were the Babylonians doing what God wanted them to do? Sure. So how does that work? Oh, those are such great questions. So I'll start with your second question first. So I'm going to start at the end of what you just said. So part of the claim of Jeremiah is that... Um, God is using the Babylonians to achieve his purpose, although they are in the wrong about what God is like. So the Babylonians have their own set of gods and goddesses or what have you. In the perspective of Jeremiah, there's only one true God and it's Israel's God. But Israel's God is capable of using, he is, he is, the sovereign director of the course of world history. And so God is not standing back and being like, oh wow, Babylon, don't do that. He's saying, okay, well, this is another way that I can get, um, I can get what I want. I can get what needs to happen occurring. That's a very anthropomorphic way of putting it, but I think it's basically the perspective, right? So next week, what we'll see is that Cyrus of Persia the Persians come along, they swallow up Babylon, and they decide to be nice to the Hebrews. And they say, okay, all the Hebrew exiles here in Babylon, you can go home. And Israel very explicitly takes that up and says, God is using Cyrus to set us free and return us home. So I think there's an increasing um, assertiveness in the Hebrew Bible about saying, even pagans who don't know Israel's God can be used by God to do his will. That's the second thing you asked about. Let's talk about the first thing you asked about. Does anyone know where Shiloh is? So in verse 12, it says, now go not on my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. Anyone know where that is? No idea. I don't blame you. I had to look it up earlier today to be sure. So Shiloh is in Israel. So it's in the north, in the kingdom that had already been gobbled up. And according to the Old Testament, it is the place where they first kept the Ark of the Covenant. So it, it was another resting place of the covenant, kind of a temple before the temple. 
And then they, then David established the temple in Jerusalem and he brought the ark in. And so the ark's resting place became Jerusalem. And what happens to the temple at Shiloh? It just kind of wasted away. So this is a very interesting way of reminding the Hebrews of their own history. And in essence, God through Jeremiah is saying, look, if you think having the temple in Jerusalem makes you above reproach, or if you think it means I won't allow you, uh, I will allow your sin to go unchecked forever and ever, please go look at the ruins in Shiloh and think about those for a second. So it's actually a very powerful illustration if you know what he's talking about. Is this passage saying that God would have protected the Hebrews from the Babylonians had they tried to put him first and follow his teachings? You know, Denise was saying so much of this goes back again to the Ten Commandments. You know, mm -hmm. you have broken very definitely these commandments, and it doesn't seem like you're even repenting and trying to do better. You, Absolutely. You're hypocrites in that you pretend to worship me, some of you, while you're doing all these things that are wrong. I mean, it's almost saying like, well, I've said to you I'm not going to destroy you like I did before in the Old Testament, just wipe you out. But now that you're not doing what I've asked, I'm going to let these other nations come and conquer you. Yeah. I, I don't see the idea of compromise or some of the other things other people mm. here who probably are more knowledgeable than I am have, have talked about. To me, it's like God saying, you're screwed because you just have, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure. done exactly what I've told you not to do, and I'm no longer protecting you. Sure. So I think part of what we're seeing here is that Jeremiah is speaking in a very drastic way, but I think he is still, I think there is still a door open for Israel to repent in Jeremiah's preaching. He's saying, you know, you need to do a U-turn right now. You need to do a U-turn right now or we're all in big trouble. But there's still the option to do the U-turn. Um, and the U-turn consists in all the things that he talks about in verses 5 through 10. If you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien that is the immigrant the ethnic stranger in your midst, the orphan and the widow, or shed innocent blood in the space, and if you do not go after other gods, then I will give you, I will dwell with you, and, and in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors. And then, um, I think Denise was correct, right? Verse 9, that's definitely a recollection of the Ten Commandments, of the Decalogue. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, that is, worship other gods, have other gods before Yahweh, etc., etc., and then come before me in my temple and say, we're safe, we're safe. So um, God is not, so God is not saying to Israel, let's compromise. You obey me some of the time, and then you'll be all right. But what God is saying through Jeremiah to Israel is, um, you are so proud and sure that I will never allow you to be punished for your sins because the temple lives in Jerusalem. And that's not true. And the proof of that, right, the flip side of that coin is God's going to allow Babylon to take over Jerusalem unless Israel repents. And so this proud notion, I think God's message is, is, is one of humility in many ways, right? They, Israel needs to humble themselves on account of their sins, repent and say, we've done wrong, show us how to do the right thing, God. And they need to humble themselves in the face of the Babylonians and say, okay, fine, you can be in charge for a while. <laughs> we don't need to have this nationalistic program of being super independent. Um, 
both of those things involve humbling. And that's precisely what they're not willing to do. Okay, what is the law about? So part of what I want you to see in chapter seven is the brilliant little summary of the law here, right? So why is Israel in trouble? They haven't kept the law. Israel is in trouble because they haven't kept the law. And the law can be, you know, this big, it can be huge. So Leviticus and Deuteronomy are books that are full of law and you can spend chapter after chapter specifying it in very detailed ways, but you can also boil it down in very simple ways. And you see it here, um, right? Act justly with one another. Don't oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow. Don't go after other gods. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't swear falsely. All of those things Israel is not doing. Note also how um, sins against God and sins against the neighbor are all of a piece in this passage. So um, he doesn't separate them out. So the sins that are occurring inside the temple, as it were, the sins against God, the worshiping of false gods, are just as important as the sins that are occurring outside the temple, where you're committing adultery and stealing from your neighbor and oppressing the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, et cetera, et cetera. So both what we would characterize as social justice issues, those really matter to God here, but also the religious issues of worshiping false gods, those really matter to God here as well. They're tied together, and you gotta have both at the same time. Um, and just this idea of, the idea that the temple is not a cure-all. Verse four, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So you've got to imagine in Jeremiah's ministry, for decades, he's talking to people saying, God is going to let us have it <laughs> if we don't mend our ways. And the universal response probably was, well, this is the temple of the Lord. Nothing bad can happen here. This is the temple of the Lord. God's given us his protection. This is the temple of the Lord. There's always going to be a king of, a son of David on the throne. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of, you know, you got to picture it being repeated to him ad nauseum. And here in this chapter, he kind of throws it back in their face and says, this has become the phrase that you use to insulate yourself from the reality of what's happening. And can you dare to look a little bit more deeply? And of course, sometimes today in the church, we have our own catchphrases or, or cliches that we use um, to get around things. And I think Jeremiah is very powerful in that respect. Um, I want to share just a few more thoughts. I mean, just the main, like one main thing, this is the best thing to end on. Like, I think Jeremiah is very much a book about the cross. It's a book about the cross kind of ahead of its time, as it were. So there's no crucifixion in Jeremiah. There's nary a mention of Jesus, at least on the surface. But I think it is a book that very much is acquainted with the reality of the cross. Jeremiah's call to ministry is a call to move toward trouble and not away from it. So think about this, right? So his, his call is to proclaim a message that is painful in its content we all need to repent or there's big trouble. It's painful in its reception because his message is largely ignored or rejected or makes people mad. And it's painful in its results. So alas, his message is not listened to and Jerusalem is destroyed. So it's, it's a very difficult message to bear. And nevertheless, Jeremiah perseveres. So... Again, this takes us back to book one and sort of the mystery of the book overall. Is this an encouraging book or a depressing book? Well, it's a lot of both. It's depressing because the message is very challenging. Challenging to Jeremiah's contemporaries as it is to me and, and many of you, I would guess, but also incredibly encouraging because Jeremiah is faithful and he is persistent and he does not give up for decades and he is vindicated. 
right? His message is proven to be correct. Would that we had such faith. Would that we had such courage, even though it led us into great tribulation and difficulty. So, um, I'll leave it there. Would that we had such faith, even though it would lead us into tribulation and difficulty. Next week, we're going to talk about the prophets and the, uh, the, the return to Israel after the exile. And then the week after that, we're in the New Testament. Thank you. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.